Good to see everybody. I'm glad you maybe made the boat ride in after the... Did everybody get rain this morning? We had a big one here. Huge. Did everybody get rain this morning? We had a huge little storm came through here, so I don't know if it may affect some folks coming in, but it's great to see everyone this morning. We want to welcome you to Gateway Baptist Church, and for those that are watching over at the gym, and for those that are joining us at home, we're so glad you're able to be with us this morning to worship the Lord and to come together as family. And I just want to make a few announcements this morning about some things that are happening in the life of the church this week. Uh, the first is uh, the men's outdoor adventures are continuing on this week. Uh, this Tuesday night at 6 p.m., uh, there's going to be a trail hike out at the AUM trails. I think the men have done that before. So this Tuesday at 6 p.m., uh, the trail hike out at the AUM trails. Also, October 9th and 10th, guys, put this on your calendar. Uh, there's going to be an overnight backpacking trip on October 9th and 10th. And all of these, all the information you're going to hear this morning, all these announcements, including this, will have, there's more details that you can look at on our blog at gatewaybaptist.com slash blog. It's gatewaybaptist.com slash blog, and all the details of these things are, are on there. Also, we're very excited. Next Sunday morning, we will be resuming our Sunday morning Bible studies over in the gym at 9 a.m. for all ages, kids, youth, and adults. Uh, there are three adult class topics that will be offered. So again, if you go to the blog and look at those, we'll give you the details of the class topics and what will be offered and those who will be teaching. So next Sunday morning, 9 a.m., we really encourage you. Just It's a wonderful time of discipleship, connection, going deeper in community and relationship at 9 a.m. Uh, with the Sunday morning, uh, Sunday morning Bible studies. And lastly, uh, we want to continue to make you aware of some prayer opportunities uh, with things that are going on in the life of our church during this difficult season and just this transition we're going into and the elder elections coming up soon. We have really been seeking the Lord for his mercy and grace and guidance. And so every Sunday morning at 8 a.m. in room one over here in the gym, there's a time of prayer from 8 to 8.45 because we'll transition to the Sunday morning Bible study time where we will meet from 8 to 8.45 and then Sunday school starts at 9. And then also a very exciting time every other Sunday, and today is one of those every other Sundays, uh, this evening at 4 p.m. here in the sanctuary will be a time of intercession from 4 to 5. And uh, we'll be praying here in the sanctuary. So that's every other Sunday at 4 p.m. in the evening here in the sanctuary. So we're very excited um, to be able to come together, worship, intercede together in these prayer opportunities, and seek the Lord for his guidance. If I ask you to please stand, we're going to read some scripture here to prepare our hearts to worship the Lord. And I'm reading from Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. Paul says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's worship the Lord together. Take the world, take the world, but 
give me Jesus all its joys are but a name but his love abides forever through eternal years to say the word but give me Jesus sweetest comfort of my soul with my Savior watching
to be able to bask in your presence and sing and declare these words of how good you are, how faithful you are. And Lord, sometimes singing these type of songs stirs things in us and situations and trials and experiences that we've had the past week. And Lord, I thank you that we can come in during this time and sing these words to bring comfort and hope and the promises of who you are. And Lord, in that posture, we just, as we just sung, Lord, that you're the defender of the weary heart. You're the one who brings hope when tides of sorrow rise. And Lord, we just right now as a body, we just lift up Sarah Mooney and her family to you in the loss of her brother this past week. And his family, God, these words speak so true of your comfort and your hope and your strength and your peace that is so supernatural, God. We're, we're crying out to you for mercy for these families that you would be that God, that they would experience your hope and comfort, that they would know that you're the solid rock that they can go to. God, we pray through this situation of grief and sorrow, God, that you would be glorified and exalted, that you would be lifted up, and that they would look to you and just bask in your presence, Lord, that they would experience your love and mercy and grace. And we thank you that we can stand in the gap with them, Lord, and love them and support them during this time. Lord, we thank you so much for our pastor and the opportunity we can pray for them this morning as they're on vacation for the first time this year, just a time for him to get away and relax and enjoy one another with Julia's parents. We pray for your protection over them, whatever they do this week. Lord, we just thank you and we just pray, that, pray they have a time of refreshing, Lord, and just to encourage them as they get together and enjoy one another. Lord, I just thank you for the aspect of being in this town for all these years, being here since 1977, Lord, and I thank you that you have made, that we are a military city, that we um, have amazing and wonderful military families that you bring here by your sovereignty, by your providence. And God, we just want to lift up our military families this morning that are here at Gateway, that are part of our family here. God, we thank you for them. We thank you that they're here for such a time as this. Many are here for only one year, two year, a small little stint, but God, we thank you for them. We ask that you would use them mightily, whether it's at Maxwell or Gunner or in the Guard, whatever it is, God, that they are sent here by your hand to be missionaries, ambassadors, to bring salt and light to the city of Montgomery and to the surrounding region. And Lord, we thank you that they are in this body with us this morning too, that we can invest in each other's lives and love on each other and support one another. And even though it may be for a brief time, God, we know we're family, so we're gonna see each other for eternity. And we just thank you for the privilege we have to have them among us. We pray your protection and your blessing and your guidance. I know many are looking to see what's next, and we just pray, Lord, that they would trust you and their hope is in you to see wherever you lead them next, God. But we just thank you so much for them. And, Lord, we thank you that we get to pray for those across uh, the sea and to lift up our family, uh, Taylor and Sarah Fox. Taylor, who grew up here, and he and his wife and family ministering in Stroudsburg, France, to the college and single students in that city that they have confessed many times here is very dark and rejects the gospel and it's very difficult to minister there but we pray and thank you that they're there in the front lines in the trenches with your gospel ministering to these young people we pray that you provide for them whatever resources they need protect them with good health give them strategies and insight on how are they to minister and draw people to them lord i know they are so loving and kind and have such hospitality inviting people into their home and we just pray your provision and that we would see fruit and we would see a, a, just a, a revival and a harvest there in Stroudsburg, France because of Taylor and Sarah. And Lord, thank you for the privilege we have each week. I pray we never take this for granted, 
that we can lift up an unreached people group by name, that we can declare these people before the Lord and to ask God to move on their behalf in tribal areas all over the world. And God, we lift up this morning the Makwe of Mozambique. Lord, these people are in darkness. They practice Islam, but also with some animism. And daily they go to witch doctors to seek counsel and help for healing and et cetera. And God, that's what you desire them to do to you. You're the one who's the healer and the provider and the one that desires to bring hope and to rescue them in their sin. And so, Lord, for those native Christians there in Mozambique and their community in their areas and the missionaries, God, stir in their hearts, convict them, give them strategies to reach this people group with the gospel. And as we do each time, Lord, we pray that you would provide the Bible and Christian resources in Swahili, the language they speak in that area, so they can see and hear the gospel. Lord, we thank you this morning for the offering that we have an opportunity to give. You're such a good God. You provide so much for us. And it's just a small way to give back for the sake of your kingdom and what you desire to do here at Gateway. And Lord, we thank you for our brother Greg. Lord, I admire this man greatly, have such great respect and love for him. Um, he's been an elder here for many years in the past and a teacher and discipler and counselor. And we just thank you for this opportunity that we have to, that he gets to come and share the word with us and teach us. And I know he loves teaching your word. And God, I'm so excited this morning. Fill him afresh with your spirit. Give him wisdom and discernment, guide and direct everything that's said and done. And we just thank you for him and this opportunity to hear your word this morning. God, again, we thank you that we can mention all these things this morning to a God who is faithful and good and just and holy and majestic, that you are so good in faith that we can entrust these things to you, knowing you hear us, knowing you will act on your sovereignty and your providence in your way as you see fit. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Am I on? Does that sound good? Okay. Well, good morning, Gateway. It's good to be with you that are here this morning, and for, for those that are uh, watching online, it's good to have you and those in the gym. Uh, it is good to be together. I tell you, it's been such a blessing to, to come back together and meet face to face. Um, and I don't take that for granted. That period where we didn't uh, really open my eyes to the power of us coming together. Uh, some of you actually may not, may not know me. I've been at Gateway here for 17 years uh, with my beautiful, lovely wife, Cecilia. I uh, have four sons. They're married all over from St. Louis to Atlanta to, to Washington, D.C. Then we have one here from the city of Verbena, which is just north of Prattville. Uh, it's not really a city if you know where Verbena is. <laughs> And the newest member of our family uh, just came to us not too long ago. It's, it's a big 2,000-pound uh, milk cow that we have. And my daughter-in-law, Sarah, uh, she's given us fresh milk and cheese and half and half. And, and Cecilia just made our first cheese yesterday. So exciting news in the Teal family. <laughs> uh, so uh, also I just want to mention that uh, for those of you who know Grady, he speaks very fast. And I speak about half as fast as Grady. So what I'm telling you is I'll probably speak twice as long as Grady. So I just wanted to tell you that up front. I'm probably not kidding either. So I hope you're comfortable today. Um, so, so today, 
Uh, we're going to be looking at James chapter 4, verses 11 through 12, which is just continuing on uh, from where Grady left off. And I want to start with a little bit of an introduction and context. And I'm one who, in, in my profession, I teach military strategy. And one thing that military strategies do is we, when we look at the adversaries, we, we look at an adversary's center of gravity. And the person that really defined that is a great Prussian military theorist called, called Karl von Clausewitz. And he called this center of gravity the Schwerpunkt, or really it's the focus point where an adversary uh, derives their strength from. And the master strategists, when they're looking at this, they look for the source of strength uh, that's even sometimes called the hub of all power. And where they find when the, where the adversary derives his strength and where his vulnerabilities are that support that, they target that with deadly force. Now, we do have an adversary, but, but one thing I want to remind you of, it's, it's not the person sitting next to you, but we do have a real adversary. Ephesians 6.12 says it this way, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And we have weapons, but they're not the kind of weapons that cause physical destruction either. It says in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. For we're destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So there is an adversary, and he is a master strategist. And he has supporting forces. And one of his great aims is to divide and conquer. So when we start looking at this adversary, Satan, just so you know the name Satan, the definition of Satan is adversary. So it's defined up front. In Romans 12, 9, it says he's the deceiver of the world. And actually his name, the devil. The devil means slanderer, accuser of the brethren. And in John 8, 44, we see really one of his chief characteristics that he's a liar that he's the father of lies, and he's been a murderer, and all of that from the very beginning. And these are also the characteristics of his demonic forces. And as the master strategist looks at the church, at any church, as he looks at you and I, one of the centers of gravity, or Schwerpunkt, is unity. The unity of the spirit, the unity of the church, the unity of the body of Christ. This has at, it, at its center our love for Christ, and our love for one another. Listen to this admonition from Paul in Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. Therefore I, prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you, which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another, in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. There's one. There's a lot of ones, right? Philippians 2, 2 through 5, Paul just really hammers this home as well. You're familiar with this, I'm sure. When he says, he's pleading with the church at Philippi, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from emptiness or selfish conceit or selfishness or empty conceit, 
but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So today, as we look at this passage in James, it really has the enemy's fingerprints all over it. And really it's about slander. It's about slander, which is also known as backbiting, and it has a cousin, gossip. And he's talking about this in the church. And as with all sin and all scripture, the same suspects appear in this case. And those suspects are pride and humility. So as we approach James 4, 11 through 12 today, where has James taken us to get us to these verses? Well, the whole book of James is about the testing of our faith and what genuine faith, what saving faith actually looks like and what it doesn't. So what does genuine faith look like? Well, in James 1, 3, he talks about the testing of your faith produces, and he goes on and fills in the blank. It does produce something. And James says what it produces says a lot about its authenticity. So one test of our faith is our tongue, which ultimately reveals what's in our hearts. In chapter 1, James talks about the source of the problem of sin. And he says very clearly it's in us. In James 1, he says, But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. So James identifies the source of our sin here. And he does it in James 4, too, when he starts out in 4.1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not the passions that wage war in your heart? He talks about it's the lusts within us, our desires within us. Um, he begins the warnings of the danger of speech, which we're going to talk about today in James 1. In verse 19, he says, This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. And if anyone thinks himself to be religious, and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Chapter 3, he goes on, and he gives us some very vivid imagery of the power of our speech and our words. In James 3, 5 through 10, he talks about the power of the tongue. And in verse 5, he says this, So also the tongue is a small part of the body. And yes, it boasts great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. A small flame that turns into a blazing fire. Now we've all seen on television uh, the, the fires out in California and Oregon. Many of them started from small flames. Uh, were irresponsibly started. But James goes on to say that those very fires are set on fire themselves by hell. And he begins to identify the source of these things. And finally, in chapter 3, verse 8, he says this, and this is the challenging part for you and I, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. But then in chapter 4, James then takes us from pride to humility. He starts out in the first five verses of James chapter 4, when he talks about uh, the source of quarrels and conflicts within us, and he talks about how really that leads us to worldliness and how the world is also pressing in on us. But then when we get to verse 6, we get to that hinge verse. He says, but he gives a greater grace. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. 
And again, Grady has already preached through this. And then in verses 7 through 10, which Grady preached on last week, it gives us what biblical, godly repentance looks like. And what James is calling is he's calling, he's speaking to the church, he's calling the double-minded man, the one who has a foot in the world and a foot in the kingdom, the one who goes back and forth, the inconsistent one. He's calling them to repentance, to move from pride to humility. And then we come to our text today where James addresses the issue of slander. It has been the case in this letter when James wrote to the church James is one of the hardest-hitting letters in the New Testament. Uh, He gets to the core issues of our human existence, and he's getting here today to something, heart-level truth, that displays itself in our speech. So on the subject of slander, John Piper says it this way, The foremost slander we must silence is the one inside of us. Full of malignant pride, our sin natures are not interested in truth, but in self-glory. So they seek to manipulate others through slander or flattery for our own selfish benefit. Sin, and therefore our demonic harassers, seizes on a concern for an offense we've received from another and seeks to distort it into thinking evil of that person. Today, as we walk through this, I want to encourage you and myself today, particularly in this moment that we are in, to reflect on our own hearts and allow the Holy Spirit to do divine surgery as we use the Word of God to do what he says in Hebrews 4.12. For the Word of God is living, active, and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So here's our main prayer for today. Grady has a main thought, well, We have a main prayer today, and it goes like this. Lord, through the power of your Spirit within and the truth of your living and active word, help me to see you, myself, and others rightly, and help me to change how I view, judge, and speak about others from the inside, our heart, out through our speech. All others good, the unity of your church, and for my greatest joy. So let's begin with the text in its meeting, I'd ask that you stand in honor of the reading of God's Word today. We're reading most of my scriptures today are from the New American Standard Bible. When I became a Christian at age 18, I was involved with Campus Crusade for Christ. I got my first New American Standard Bible. And for the last, I don't even, how many years is that? Uh, it's a long time. 40 years? Oh, I just gave my age away. So for the last 40 years, I've, I've been a New American Standard. So the English Standard Version, I love it, I like it, but I, I use the New American Standard Bible. So let's read out of James, chapter 4, 11 and 12. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? So pray with me. Father, I know that I still tremble to teach your word. Lord, the responsibility of that. And I pray today, Lord, that that by your Holy Spirit and 
the time I've spent in your word, Lord, that truth would be proclaimed. And if it's not, Lord, would you correct me? And Lord, I pray too that you would take my and our ears so that we might hear today. That you would take our eyes, Lord, so that we might see. And that you might touch our hearts so that we might receive the word that you have for each one of us today. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus and all for your glory. Amen. So what is James addressing here when he says, do not speak against one another, brethren, as we start with this verse? Well, this word is kataleleo from the Greek. And really, right from the Greek, here's, here's what it means. It means to speak evil of. Other translations actually translate it slander. And it means to speak down to in a hostile way, to mock or revile, detracting from someone's reputation by malice of speech, directed against one's neighbor, to defame, to slander, to backbite. <coughs> so two working definitions uh, I'd like to give you from, from John MacArthur. Uh, the first is, slander is proclaiming or spreading around something that is false with a malicious intent. Now James has just pointed out that humility is the essential characteristic in the person that has received God's saving grace. And now he's showing us one specific way that that humility is violated and one specific way that that pride is revealed in us. So what is James, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, commanding us not to do? Well, here's a, a second way to think about that. The careless babble that runs people down, critical, derogatory, slanderous, and untrue, and usually defaming a person who isn't there to defend himself, hence the term slandering and or backbiting. So let's look at the, let's now look at the nature of this sin as we kind of explore a little bit of the anatomy of slander. So Paul illustrated the character and nature of slander in Romans 1, 29 through 30. Now, Paul, who he's describing here is the unsaved, the ungodly of this world, really in, in the spiral of depravity. And what that spiral, when it gets to the bottom, he's, de he's describing what it looks like. And here's what he says. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. That's just a list of evil. And in 2 Corinthians 12, 20, Paul is saying here to the church in Corinth, says, for I'm afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you not to be what I wish, and I may be found by you to not be what you wish, that perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, backbiters, gossip, whisperers. And those, those words are different words used for that. Arrogance disturbances. And you see here, what you see is a pile of words that has to do with the mistreatment of people. And in both of these passages, we see slander associated with gossip. So let's take a look at what is gossip. Now John Piper takes his definition from gossip right from the Greek dictionary. Derogatory information 
that may be true or untrue about someone that you have that is shared with others in a tone of confidentiality that's not motivated by doing good to them and that you're enjoying in a way that shows that your heart is not humble. Another pastor by the name of Stephen Cole identifies the relationship between gossip and slander this way. He said, gossip is sharing information which damages another person's reputation with those who have no need to know. It may be completely factual, and more often the one sharing it has not bothered to check out the facts, which gets distorted for the sake of making it more interesting. If the one who is sharing the information knows that it's not completely true, and his motive for sharing it is to damage the other person, it moves from gossip to slander. And this is so widely practiced and accepted in the church to our shame. Transition. Let's move to the next point. What is God's view of slander or gossip? As we've looked at what it is, what's well, most graphically illustrated in Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. I bet most of you have read this at some point. And this is one that we really should pay attention to. Anytime it says that God hates something. It says there are six things which the Lord hates. You have seven which are an abomination. Most of us should probably start listening now. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, which we see is kind of the instrument of slander, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, see the motive of slander, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, see the act of slander, and one who spreads strife among brothers, we see the effect of slander. At least four of these six listed here are directly related to slander. God hates slander. Psalm 50, verses 19 through 20, and this is where God is speaking to the wicked. He says, you let your mouth loose in evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. We'll turn to the New Testament. Ephesians 4, it's a, power chapter, a powerful chapter apart from this subject on godly communication. We use it a lot in our marriage counseling. And it addresses this sin that grieves God. Ephesians 4, verses 29 through 31 says this, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. So this is something that grieves the heart of God. By whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And really what this describes is what I would term a slander cocktail, mixed with the ingredients of the heart that underpin the act of slander. So this verse in Ephesians reveals many of our heart motivations that actually lead us to slander, actually lead us to slander, and add to that, Again, this Pastor Steve Cole, he says it this way. You judge someone wrongly when you criticize him out of jealousy, bitterness, selfish ambition, or some other sin, rather than seeking to build him up in Christ. In other words, your motivation in this issue is very crucial. So now, Scripture chronicles the devastating effects of this kind of speech. And it's pretty, I could go without saying, is that slander and gossip are very damaging, very 
hurtful. They do have damaging and destructive effects on people and community. Let's just look at a few of the effects of gossip and slander. In Matthew 15, 18 through 19, our Lord Jesus associated slander with the violent sins that proceed out of an evil heart. And it actually defiles the one who's slandering. It says, but the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, or false witness, and slanders. See in Proverbs 16, 28, that slander utterly destroys friendships. It says, a perverse man spreads strife, and a slanderer separates in intimate friends. In Proverbs 18, 8, and 26, 22, those both say the same thing. The scripture says it leaves deep scars and deep wounds in the soul of the one slandered. The words of a whisper are like dainty morsels, and they go down in the innermost parts of the body. What a word picture for the pain that slander and gossip produce in each of our hearts. And in Proverbs 6, 19, we looked at that earlier under the verses that what God hates, spread strife among brothers. It reveals how slander and gossip lead ultimately to conflict. And Proverbs 26, 20 chronicles how gossip and the, the gossip and slander keep those fires of war burning by painting a picture of how the whisperer is the fuel for the fires of contention. For lack of wood, the fire goes out. Where there is no whisper, contention quiets down. What a, what a word picture for us. And I don't know how many of you have heard of the French philosopher Blaise Pascal, but he said this, I lay it down as a fact of life that if all men knew what others say of them, there would not be four friends in the world. Think about that. We don't need to look far to evaluate Pascal's supposition. Let's just think simply from our own personal experience. How we, how I, have talked at times about others when they weren't present. This is a very sobering thing. So there is actually an X factor that's also associated with slander. As we continue in the text, James goes on in verse 11 to say this. He says, he who speaks against a brother, that's back to what he just said, he says, or judges his brother, speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, and the one who's able to save and to destroy but who are you who judge your neighbor? So what is James getting at here with the addition of judging his brother, judging the law, and there being only one lawgiver and judge? And how does that fit together with this? And we also, if we look back, we also see in James 2, 4 as well, he says, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Now this describes the kind of evil he's speaking about. He repeats the verb for evil speaking, and then he adds the thought of judging. 
Now, this is the word in the Greek called krino. And in this context, he's talking about it means to condemn, to judge someone and condemn them. It's not evaluation. It's condemnation. It's saying somebody is evil. So this is the added factor of slander. Slander is to speak evil. And then you actually go one step further. You judge the law, condemn the law, and then you actually put yourself in the place of God and you condemn a person. This is the added X factor of slander. And you see, this is the kind of judging that when Jesus talks about don't judge, that's what he's talking about. That's what he's talking about because there is only one judge. Now, we might examine, we might discern, but we don't play God. We don't condemn people as if we were the judge. And that's what James is talking about here, condemning people. So let's make sure we're clear, because anytime the topic of judgment or judging others comes up, there's all kinds of thoughts on what that means. Don't ever judge anybody. But let's, let's talk about, we just talked about what James means. Let's talk about what James does not mean here when we look at the rest of Scripture. He does not mean righteous judging of sin in another believer. And if appropriate, to confront in love towards reconciliation and restoration. And as we see in Matthew 18, we'll look at this, and in many other passages, this is the case. So John MacArthur says it this way. This does not mean we are forbidden to hate sin. It does not mean we're forbidden to expose sin. It does not mean we're forbidden to name sinners who will not repent. Quite the contrary, in the scripture, such discernment and exposure is commanded. What? Are we? So let's, let's kind of tease that out a little bit. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17, this is where Jesus is talking about Really, how do we confront sin in the church with fellow believers? Well, Jesus said, if your brother sins, you go to him. If he doesn't listen to you, you take two or three witnesses. And if he doesn't listen, you tell it to whom? To the church. That's what he says. And James was not being judgmental in James chapter 5 when he confronted sin in the church when he says this in verses 19 through 20. It says, my brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. You see the good motive? So this is actually something that's a good thing when it's done in a godly way. Romans 16, 17 through 18, another example. Paul speaking, he says, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you've learned. Turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites. By their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. There's some pretty severe judgment being made here. It's righteous judgment, and it's needed. 1 Timothy Chapter 1, 19 and 20, Paul mentions that some have rejected faith and a good conscience and actually have suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. And he doesn't leave it there, but he goes on in, verses one, in verse 20. He said, among those are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. And in 2 Timothy, 
chapter 2, verses 17 to 18, he names Hymenaeus and Philetus, adding, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place and upset the faith of some. So Paul named names. He didn't just name sin, he named names. And James and Paul both were not wrongly judging others. They were exercising discernment about ungodly behavior and false teaching. So again, I've quoted him several times, but Stephen Cole, if you look him up, he's, he's a very solid pastor uh, in his teaching. He says, he's been a pastor over 40 years, and he says it this way, on a personal level, such confrontation is the responsibility of every spiritual believer. And he points us to Galatians 6.1, which says this, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. That is a beautiful picture of how we are to do some one another's in the church. That passage, the gentleness, looking to ourselves first, taking the specks out of our own, logs out of our own eyes. And he goes on to say, as a general rule, the circle of those who are informed of the situation should be limited to those who can help or to those who need to be protected. The aim should always be to restore the sinning believer, to protect the church from sin and to honor God. But it's not judgmental. And it's acting in love to confront sin and false teaching in the church, end quote. So we've looked now at what James means when he addresses slander and looked at its cousin gossip. We also looked at what it doesn't mean. So now let's move to some application from this passage. And this is where I hope that we really start to, to listen up. We're going to look in three areas. First, we're going to look, how can we help as a church? How can we help each other in this area of slander and gossip? And then secondly, look at how do we help ourselves in this area of slander and gossip? And then thirdly, for those of you who might have been the subject of slander and gossip, what can we offer? What does the Word of God offer as how you to respond to that? So let's start off. John Bloom, who wrote an article on slander for John Piper's ministry, Desiring God, said it this way. He said, when someone slanders another to us, we must remember that we're not mainly fighting flesh and blood, but spiritual forces of evil. Satan knows that slander deadens and splits churches, it poisons friendships, and it fractures families. He knows that slander quenches the Holy Spirit, kills love, short-circuits spiritual renewal, undermines trucks, trust, and sucks the courage out of the saints. So our goal, particularly in the context of the church, is to help each other and shed demonic weights and avoid satanic stumbling blocks. So he goes on. How do we do this? He said, the best way to do this is you become a person that's not welcome to be slandered around you're not safe to be slandered around. And I would say gossiped around. So you ask questions like this when somebody comes to you. Have you shared this concern with this person directly? I'd be willing to go and talk to you. And, or you say, just to be clear, is this information I should know? Do you want me to help you pursue reconciliation? 
are you doing everything you can to put away all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander? How can I help you to guard this person's reputation like a treasure? Have you ever done that to someone? Look, we have people that come to us, every single person in here, all the time, with gossip and slander. And we've been participants. Well, a guy by the name of Gordon McDonald, some of you older folks might have heard of him, has a story that kind of illustrates this a little bit. He says, I was in Japan with a friend, since gone to be with the Lord. We were walking down the street in Yokohama, and in conversation, the name of a mutual friend came up, and I said something unkind about that person, a sarcastic, nasty put-down. My older friend stopped, turned, and faced me until his face was nearly touching my own. With slow, deliberate words, he said, Gordon, a man who says he loves God wouldn't talk that way about a friend. He could have put a knife in my ribs. The pain wouldn't have been any less. I hurt because he had me. He'd done what a prophet does. But I bet there's been 10,000 times in the last 20 years I've been saved for making a jerk of myself. Whenever I've been tempted to say something unkind about a brother or sister, I hear my friend's voice once again saying, Gordon, a man who says he loves God wouldn't talk like that about a friend. In other words, friends don't let friends slander or gossip. The more we love people, the more we will hate slander and gossip. So now let's turn to how we help ourselves. And James actually gives us indirectly four ways that we can help ourselves in our thinking about slander and gossip. Number one starts with how do we see others? And he wants us to remember this is a brother or a sister in our family that we're talking about here. And he says this uh, in this passage three times, starting in verse 11. Do not speak against one another, brethren, the slanderer. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother. So he's talking about slander among the family here, within the family. And the shock is that you and I expect the world to do this, right? I mean, we expect this. But we don't expect it in our family, from Christian to Christian, brother to sister, brother to brother. And so, if our bent was to first see others through the eyes and heart of love, the 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love, God's love, we might see the best more often than we see the worst in people. I'd encourage you to go back and read 1 Corinthians 13. and See how love to each other manifests itself when it's God's love. So remember who you're doing it to. One for whom Christ died. One for who is his own elect. His own beloved child. And when you do this, you offend God. You offend Christ, you offend the Holy Spirit who dwells in them to say nothing of defend, or offending them. This is pretty serious stuff. 
So how we see others. And then he goes on how we see God's moral law when he talks about how we speak against, we, we slander the law, we judge the law. And he wants us to remember that we're slandering the law of love. And I wish I had more time to unpack when you look at the law and what it is. It's truly a code of love. I mean, the Ten Commandments are about loving God and loving people, which is why in the New Testament it says that it's all summed up in love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself, because that's the Ten Commandments. That's the Ten Commandments, the law of love. And we are slandering the law of love. And we are judging, sitting on top of the law of love when we gossip about and slander others. Grievously, we are. And we need to remember that. And then, number three, he reminds us to remember how we see God. John MacArthur says it this way. There's no room. Let me, let me go back. First of all, in the, in the passage, it says there's one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy. And here's what that means. There's no room for you on the bench. There are no vacancies in the Trinity. If you remember the fall of Satan, he thought himself higher than God and God's law and God himself. And he goes on to say, remember that Satan said, I will be like God. I will be like the Most High. Five times he said, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. And he sought the place of supremacy. He sought to come out from under the submission that was under God and to be above God and in charge. And that's been the essence of every sin since. So God is in charge of eternal destiny. He is the lawgiver. He is the Savior. And James is making the point that when we slander, we're putting ourselves above God's law, and we have the audacity to take the place of God as judge. That's the level that he puts this sin on. And we should tremble at this one. But then finally, kind of directs us to say, what do we think about ourselves? What, what, a, what a classic line. Who are you? Who am I? Who are you to judge your neighbor? And so, he really gets down to what I would term the sinfulness of sin. William Beveridge spoke of how our sinful flesh in some way contaminates, so as to speak, even our most holy thoughts, words, and deeds. And something the Lord's been teaching me lately in my own life is to even think about judging the motives of someone else. I have a hard time discerning my own. Can, can, can I get an amen on that? I, I don't even know sometimes if I'm actually having good motives or am I doing this for a selfish reason. I have a hard time with my own heart. So think about it when I try to judge somebody else's heart. But he says this. He says, I cannot pray except I sin. I cannot preach, but I sin. I cannot administer nor receive the Holy Sacrament, but I sin. My very repentance needs to be repented of. And the tears I shed need washing in the blood of Christ. Well, praise the Lord for that last line. Praise the Lord that he talks about the blood of Christ. And he realizes, he realizes his utter sinfulness and he realizes the power of the blood of Christ. Charles Spurgeon. This quote is humorous 
and profoundly true. He says, if any man thinks ill of you, don't be angry with him, for you're worse than he thinks you to be. (laughs) Now think about if you actually took that on board in your life. Think about that. How it would be different how you receive things from people. You didn't take offense. If you only knew what was in my heart, you're not even getting close. And I can say that's true of me. And that's why I tremble when I come up here. So we need to look deeply into our own hearts. And really, we should just tremble at the thought of judging another's motives. And in summary, if we're going to take seriously the call to live our lives set apart to Christ and deal forthrightly with the sin in our own hearts and our own speech, it will be, as James alludes to, how we see others, how we see God's law, how we see God himself, and how we see ourselves. So finally, I want to just go one step further and speak briefly to those who have suffered the pain of being slandered and or the subject of gossip. And I guess in some regards, probably we all have. But for those who have, when we're hurt deeply by the words of others, particularly untrue words, words that might be maliciously directed at us, we would do well to remember Paul's admonition to us in Romans 9. Romans, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. I just want to explore that just for a minute. He starts off in verse 9, he says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Now when you've been slandered or gossiped, you might think, because this word hypocrisy means wearing a mask. It means genuine. How can I love someone genuine when I just feel like they have just crushed my soul? Well, the one word I can give to you is to love them while repenting. And ask God to change your heart affection for that person, but to love them nonetheless. He goes on to say, abhor what is evil. And it is okay to hate the evil of slander and to recognize the author of slander. He says, cling to what is good. And I would say this is a a desperate clinging to the goodness, the unchanging goodness, character of God. And then he goes down to verses 10 through um, 13, and I won't read those, but he, he basically is talking about practice the one another's. Practice the one another's and be devoted to prayer. So in God's wisdom, he knows our weakness. He knows our unredeemed humanness and our sinful flesh. And so he gives us these upside-down kingdom principles that are so unnatural that they must be supernatural, only granted to us by his glorious grace through the indwelling spirit in us. So we're we're about to get to the hard part. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. And then in verse 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Verse 19, never take your own revenge. Never, never. He said, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now remember from James, there's only one judge. 
And all things will be judged in the end. But not yet. Some things may be judged here. But in many cases, not here, not yet. And not by you, and not by me. Finally, he ends with these words. But if your enemy's hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heat burning coals on his head. Now I want you to remember this next line here. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This temptation is so great. Vengeance, revenge, hatred, bitterness, anger, malice. That God not only gives us these negative commands, never pay back evil for evil, never take your own revenge. But he prescribes the final blow to this evil. Do good to your enemy. Not just don't do bad to them, but actively do good. And who do we see in that model? We see Christ. Because that's exactly what he did for you and I. And I would say, friends, there, there's a warning. There's a reason this warning is here. Because you and I can so easily be overcome by evil. And when we do that, we become the very evil that we abhor. And it's only one bitter, jealous step away. Here's one final word from George Whitfield, one of the most famous evangelists of the 18th century. He said, Let the name of Whitfield perish, but Christ be glorified. Let my name die everywhere. Let my friends forget me if by that means the cause of the blessed Jesus may be promoted. I'm content to wait till the judgment day for the clearing of my reputation. And after I am dead, I desire no other epitaph than this. Here lies George Whitfield. What sort of man he was, the great day will discover. Well, I can tell you I'm not there yet. Say, Lord, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. So this brings us back full circle to James 4, 6, that hinge verse. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but give grace, gives grace to the humble. And there we see the gospel. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. As Tim Keller has reminded us many times, he says, in Christ, I'm not just more sinful than I ever dared fear, but more loved than I ever dared hope. But he gives a greater grace, a grace that is greater than all our sin. So this word today from James should lead us, each and every one of us, to do some soul searching. And praise team, if you want to come forward, you can now. And I want to ask you to ask yourself some questions. Have I maliciously spoken evil of someone unfairly? unjustly or without cause have I painted someone else in an unfavorable light behind their back even when I was telling the truth if we've slandered someone or gossiped about someone or even unjustly judged others this is a time for confession and a time for repentance and James even told us that the one who doesn't sin with his tongue is the perfect man and that excludes all of us so if we've sinned against someone, 
in our speech. We need to repent, confessing our sin to the Lord because we've sinned against Him, and to seek forgiveness and reconciliation with the one we've offended. And if we've been sinned against, we need to forgive. So I want to end where we begin by crying out to God with this prayer. Lord, through the power of your Spirit within and the truth of your living and active Word, help me to see you, myself, and others rightly. And help me to change how I view, judge, and speak about others from the inside out, all for your glory, others' good, the unity of your church and our greatest joy. Amen.
our foundation is built. Our strength is found in you, God. 
You are the solid rock on which we stand, God, from which we find our hope in times of need, God. Where we find blessing in the times of joy, God, and it all comes from you, Father, and you alone. God, be with us now as we go. 